I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, recorded one day after the New Hampshire primary, we turn our attention once again to the constitutional issues raised by the 2016 presidential campaign. Uh, here to provide us with context and commentary are two members of the National Constitution Center's distinguished and illuminating Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board returning champions on We the People. Ilya Shapiro is Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute in Washington and Editor-in-Chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Michael Dorff is the Robert S. Stevens Professor of Law at Cornell University Law School. Ilya, Mike, welcome back. It's so great to have you. Good to be here. It's good to be on the uh, the morning after a, uh, a political earthquake of sorts in New Hampshire. Speaking of political earthquakes, I want to ask you a question about the Constitution and the election. Some have suggested that the populist strains we're seeing in American politics, from Donald Trump on the right to Bernie Sanders on the left, are part of uh, a tradition of uh, populism in the U.S. that sometimes had anti-constitutional, anti-establishment strains. And uh, I wonder what you uh, both think of that. Uh, Ilya, is there an anti-constitutional strain to the campaigns of both Trump and Sanders? And how does that work out historically? Well, I'm not sure Donald Trump has really uh, read much uh, constitutional theory, probably not a, not a follower of our podcast, unfortunately. Um, Bernie Sanders as well. I, I imagine that he, you know, the ends justify the means, and uh, there are urgent problems in the country that need to be solved. And kind of a, in a Wilsonian view, the uh, the antiquated uh, uh, checks and balances of the constitutions are in the way, so we should uh, uh, do away with them or, or uh, ignore them. I mean, fundamentally, I think there are large groups of people, left, right, and center, and you know, Trump is not necessarily the extreme right, I think. In, in fact, he draws more from uh, moderates or independents or people who are uncharacterizable ideologically. Um, that are disaffected from the political system, that feel like government is not responsive, that the system is broken. And I think in those general terms, I think there's a lot, uh, a lot to be said for that. Uh, I'm sure we can debate why that is. I happen to think it's because there's too much uh, power centralized in the federal government. Uh, because we've slipped loose of our constitutional restraints, uh, and so in a country as large and diverse and with so many different ideas about the proper role of government, what it should be doing, uh, of course, we're going to be at loggerheads uh, when you have a uh, understandably polarized uh, Congress representing uh, different sectors of, of the country. And I think the solution is to get back to the Constitution. And if you push power down and be, have it more uh, local, then you wouldn't have all of these clashes uh, at the national level uh, with uh, the political process paralyzed necessarily because different people in different parts of the country are uh, of different views on, on how to do, uh, how, to, how to resolve uh, fundamental matters of public policy. Very interesting. Okay, Mike, so Ilya has sh sharpened the question and suggested that uh, there's a Wilsonian tradition in American politics which questions the idea of checks and balances and favors centralized government power and that is being embraced by both Trump and Sanders and their populist supporters. What do you think of that argument? Well, let me begin by questioning uh, Ilya's assessment of the cause of disaffection. I think for both Trump supporters and Sanders supporters, what you're seeing as the primary driver is economic anxiety, 
caused partly by long-term trends such as globalization that uh, reduce the manufacturing base of the United States, uh, make uh, it much harder for unskilled workers to uh, have a middle-class lifestyle and so forth. I think that's ultimately the driving force behind the move towards these two populist candidates. But to put put it in historical perspective and going back to the original question, I think there are, in fact, two traditions of American populism. One, which you might uh, take back to Andrew Jackson or even to Thomas Jefferson, has uh, strains of the sort of federalism that uh, Ilya has identified as an important uh, strand of American thought. Uh, And that is very much constitutionalist rather than anti-constitutionalist. So the Jeffersonians, the Jacksonians... Uh, and then later uh, iterations of this say exactly what Ilya has said. The problem is too much centralization. Uh, sometimes that's a populist view. Sometimes it's uh, a just a, a general view. The Wilsonian strand, uh, I think, is peculiar to the progressive era. It's a period when uh, scholars and others actually were attacking the Constitution as such, not saying simply the problem is that we've betrayed the Constitution or misinterpreted it, but that the Constitution itself is flawed. So you see this, for example, in the work of uh, Charles and Mary Beard in the early 20th century, uh, portraying the Constitutional Convention as a kind of elitist counter-revolution against the democratic traditions of uh, the uh, American Revolution itself. So, uh, you know, that, that I think is there in the American tradition, but I think much more commonly what we see in populist and, frankly, all kinds of movements for uh, political change is an attempt to say we are speaking for the true Constitution that has been betrayed by our political opponents. Okay, this is so interesting. I want to take one more beat on it. So I have, uh, in June, a completely riveting uh, new book on uh, Louis Brandeis coming out and actually argue that he is part of the Jacksonian-Jeffersonian tradition that Mike describes. Uh, I call him the Jewish Jefferson, in fact, and and, uh, Brandeis um, explicitly thinks of himself as a Jeffersonian and wants to uh, restore limitations on government power because of his opposition to the curse of bigness in business and government. Uh, He is an economic populist who wants to break up the banks, but he also wants to defend the Constitution. Um, Ilya, what I want to ask you is, can you give examples uh, historically of populist movements on the right that have been opposed to that Jeffersonian, Jacksonian, Brandeisian, libertarian uh, tradition? I I think of the know-nothings and the nativists of the 19th century. Are there conservative equivalents of the kind of progressive uh, Wilsonians who are anti-constitutionalists uh, throughout American history. Well, I'm getting a little confused because I don't think of Brandeis necessarily as a, as a libertarian. Although I suppose he is a federalist in the sense of he's the one that that coined the idea of, of laboratories and democracy. I believe. Um, you know, it, it depends how you define uh, uh, right and left. You can, I think, have no nothingism of the of the left and the right. And of course, in the 19th century. Uh, pre-industrial revolution, uh, what we think of now as as progressive left or the, or the socialists uh, didn't didn't exist. So left and right would be defined uh, much differently. And of course, the the parties' uh, positions, the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, post Civil War uh, and in the industrial era, would flip with respect to tariffs, with respect to a whole host of uh, uh, of economic national issues. The the battle between the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians, if you will, to, to throw yet another uh, a strain uh, of 
of American history in there. But I, I mean, populism in general, I mean, I suppose can be, has been associated with one party or another. You have uh, William Jennings Bryan ran for president three times. Uh, you have George Wallace uh, and, and the segregationists and the, and the Dixiecrats, um, uh, the, the, who I believe is the last third-party candidate to gain uh, electoral votes. Um, you know, this, this, uh, there are, certainly have been periods of, of, uh, uh, of great disaffection. You know, the Ross Perot vote, which is uh, probably overlaps greatly with, with the Trump vote, kind of uh, uh, both demographically, uh, economically, and, and in terms of uh, uh, lower information voters, people that uh, otherwise wouldn't switch to a different candidate but simply wouldn't come out to vote. Um, so, you know, the challenge now, uh, I think, uh, well, we'll see what happens with this political cycle, but, uh, if, uh, Trump and or Sanders don't get the nomination, uh, is to reabsorb those voters, uh, uh, or, uh, you know, maybe they'll go back to not, uh, not participating in the, in the system altogether, but certainly populism, you know, the American, the United States is not, uh, uh, this is not an example of American exceptionalism that all these countries around the world have gone through periods of populism, and, 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 and we don't have that. Uh, uh, you know, Trump is kind of like the American Berlusconi, and we'll see if he manages to, to seize power. Probably would, would have been easier for him to do it in a parliamentary system. Uh, w- interesting observation, the notion that Trump is more like a, a European uh, n- nationalist than uh, a Jeffersonian or Jacksonian. Mike, one more beat. I, I do argue that Brandeis is uh, a libertarian. His favorite book was a book on Jefferson that painted Jefferson as the great libertarian, and he opposed centralized planning in, in business and government. And yet, um, in the 19... 19- well, I look well, just, your ju- book, then. Uh, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> no, it, it's, I, I'm hoping that uh, the Cato Institute, along with the rest of the country, will celebrate it and, and have launch parties uh, uh, where people dance in the streets. But, um, Mike... One uh, argument that the scholars uh, Fishkin and Forbath have made is that in the 1960s, the Democratic Party abandoned this Jeffersonian-Jacksonian tradition of economic populism that had stretched through FDR and became more interested in extending already abundant economic opportunities to women and minorities in particular and became more focused on questions of equality and identity politics and less on economic justice. Are we seeing a Reversal of that now with the surge around Sanders and are Democrats rediscovering the the tradition of Jackson and Jefferson? So I don't think it ever truly went away, right? Both uh, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are uneasy coalitions uh, and shifting coalitions of people whose interests and uh, ideologies don't entirely overlap. And for the Democratic Party, the um, you know, we talk about the New Deal Great Society Coalition, and the New Deal was certainly a period in which the Democratic Party was focused more on economic equality, uh, and then you can think of the Great Society as an attempt to uh, sort of shift that towards what we would now call identity politics. Uh, but relative to the Republican Party in those times, it was still the case that the Democrats were more focused on issues of uh, economic distribution than uh, were the Republicans. Um, if I can uh, bring it back a little bit to the uh, the question that you first posed for Ilya, whose answer I mostly agree with, um, I would say that on the right, one of the you know things that happened essentially since the Cold War is that the mainstream position on the right 
was for centralization with respect to the military, and so that you occasionally see people who get branded as isolationists, uh, I think of Pat Buchanan, Ron Paul, and now Rand Paul, trying to revive that approach, uh, the sort of small government approach to foreign policy, uh, and arguing that it is more consistent with the sort of general libertarian uh, philosophy. Uh, and there just is, it doesn't seem to be room for that uh, in the Republican coalition now. Um, interestingly, you know, I think Sanders is probably closer to Rand Paul on foreign policy than either of them is, say, to Hillary Clinton, who's, you know, probably not that far from Jeb Bush, say. Uh, and so that's an example of the sort of shifting coalitions. I just think it's very hard to, you know, talk about what the parties stand for, given that we have, you know, dozens of issues that can split many ways, and you've got to force them into two parties when, if, you know, you did the matrix, there would be, you know, thousands of possible combinations. Um, very interesting indeed. Uh, well, let's return to uh, the explicitly constitutional questions that have been raised by the campaign. I think this really, and I want to continue this um, historical uh, discussion over the coming months, uh, but uh, one of the most um, dramatic recently was Donald Trump's proposal that would ban all Muslims from entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. And the question for both of you is, is this ban constitutional? Both of you have uh, written about this. Ilya, let me begin with you. If Trump's ban on Muslims entering the United States passed, would that or not violate the Constitution? You know, I, I went on, I think, CBS News uh, about this when it first broke, and, and we didn't even know what the scope of what Trump was proposing was. I'm not sure he had anything particular in mind. So I was, you know, issue spotting like I was a, a law student. Well, there's the, the Fifth Amendment liberty concern. There's the First Amendment freedom of religion. There's uh, this and that uh, due process uh uh, first of all, if, if it's banning Americans or, or even lawful permanent residents who happen to be uh, a, a Muslim, that, that's, a, that's a clear, obvious non-starter. With respect to uh, non-citizens, I think it's an open question. I think uh, Mike is actually uh, on the record. He crops up in the uh, New York Times articles about this and other things, saying that it's a close question. And um, I, I, It depends how the policy would be raised, and it depends... Uh, who would have uh, standing to, to challenge this? Would it be family members? Would it be tour operators uh, in the United States? Because simply foreigners, I don't think, would have, uh, there's no, you know, a right, I have a right to get into the United States. I don't think that that, that, that would raise an issue of, uh, of standing. Mike uh, tends to talk about uh, kind of uh, a popular constitutionalism or kind of the unwritten constitution. Well, I'll let him uh, speak to that. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it really depends on what the actual policy is, who is, uh, would, would be in a, in a position to, to bring a challenge. Um, you know, we still have lots of laws on the books about the, the, the Chinese Exclusion Act and, and the precedent that has not been overruled. And in that regard, uh, Jimmy Carter uh, excluded uh, Iranians, uh, so that's not on religion, that's based on national origin. That's kind of a narrower thing. I think, uh, again, the, the devil is always in the details, and I think the constitutional analysis would be different uh, if, uh, say, uh, it could be proven that 90% of Muslims who are trying to get in had some connection to terrorism versus, uh, well, only 1% or less than 1% or what have you. So sometimes the facts on the ground uh, uh, shade uh, what the legal analysis would be. 
Great. Thanks for that. Michael, you have written extensively about this. You've said that the U.S. routinely applies different immigration rules for nationals of different countries, but it's not a constitutional no-man's land. Odious discrimination in immigration law is unconstitutional, as the House recognized three years ago when it passed a resolution expressing regret for the Chinese exclusion laws. You've also flagged immigration policy based on religious prejudice, which you said would be equally odious and less unconstitutional. My question, you, you know, give us a sense of your thoughts on all this. And is it the case that at one point in American history in the 19th century, these explicitly ethnic-based exclusions were considered constitutional and things have changed uh, or not? It's useful to distinguish between nationality-based discrimination with respect to immigration and what is called in the U.S. constitutional case law um, uh, national origin. So um, national origin discrimination is kind of ethnic discrimination. It's based on ethnic stereotypes or national stereotypes. Uh, and that, at least domestically, is considered presumptively unconstitutional in the same way that race discrimination is considered presumptively unconstitutional. Uh, with respect to nationality, though, that is to say what country somebody is a citizen or subject of, the immigration law has long drawn distinctions. And that's, I think, understandable. We have different trade relations. We have different treaty regimes uh, with different countries. So when Carter says Iranians can't come in, he's not saying uh, U.S. citizens of Iranian descent can't come in, as Ilya noted is a possible understanding of uh, Trump's view with respect to Muslims. Uh, he's saying people who are from Iran, which we are treating as a hostile power. Um, so I, I realize it's slicing uh, the matter quite thinly, but I think there is an important distinction to draw there. A second distinction I would draw is between what the Constitution permits or forbids, on the one hand, and what the courts are prepared uh, to do to stop the political branches from acting uh, in violation of the Constitution. So I agree with Ilya that uh, one threshold question would be who has standing to challenge one of these restrictions. If it's a non-citizen, non-green card holder outside the United States, then uh, it's very difficult to get into a, a U.S. court. Moreover, even once you get into the U.S. courts, there's the so-called plenary power doctrine, which makes congressional decisions and presumably presidential decisions to, that implement federal statutes virtually unreviewable. Um, so when I said that the uh, immigration law is not a constitutional no-man's land, I did not necessarily mean that the courts would stop a President Trump from acting in a way that I think is unconstitutional. What I meant was that he, as president, has an obligation to abide by the Constitution, even in a context in which no court is going to tell him uh, what his constitutional duty is, just as the Senate, when it's trying an impeachment, uh, is bound by constitutional standards, although not judicially enforceable ones. Great. Um, one more beat on this, Ilya. Uh, did, uh, has our constitutional understanding changed in the 19th century when the 14th Amendment was ratified? Uh, Justice uh, John Marshall Harlan, who so famously dissented in Plessy versus Ferguson and objected to the unconstitutionality of separate but equal railway cars, also went on a screed about um, 
uh, immigrants of Chinese origin and said that they were properly excluded from the country. And in cases like U.S. versus Jude Troy in 1905, the court held that even a U.S. citizen of Chinese descent who was denied entry to the U.S. was not deprived of due process when he was denied entry. Was the original understanding of the 14th Amendment consistent with exclusions that we would not uh, tolerate today? Well, I think uh, you look at, uh, as we do in, in other occasions, uh, whether birthright citizenship or uh, same-sex marriage, for that matter, the, uh, it's not the, the intent of the ratifiers or enactors of the, of the 14th Amendment that matters, but what do the words on the, on the page mean and the understanding of, uh, of due process or, or privileges and immunities or uh, uh, equality under the law. And I think under those standards, uh, for American citizens, certainly, I don't think you can exclude them uh, based on uh, uh, religion or, or national origin of, uh, of their parents or, um, uh, or them if they were naturalized. Uh, so I think it's not necessarily the meaning of the Constitution has changed, but uh, to the extent that uh, uh, whether John Marshall Harlan or anyone else, uh, whether in 1900 or, or, or later or earlier, thought that uh, American citizens have different rights based on uh, their ethnic background, I think they were simply, uh, they were simply wrong. Um, great. Thanks for that. Um, birthright uh, citizenship is next. Uh, the Constitution, Article 2, Section 1, says that no person except a natural-born citizen or citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. There's been a lively debate about whether or not Ted Cruz, who was born in Alberta, uh, to a mother who was a U.S. citizen and a father who was a Cuban national, uh, qualifies as a natural-born citizen. Um, both of you have uh, written about this clause. Uh, Michael, you uh, have said that the natural born citizenship clause in 2008, you wrote this was one of the worst features of our constitution. Until it's amended, I would favor reading it so as to make eligibility for the presidency as wide as possible. Tell us why you believe that and what you think the arguments uh, for and against Cruz's citizenship are and which you find more persuasive. Uh, so I wrote that interestingly in the context of the questions about John McCain's eligibility to be president. And I think the general consensus is that McCain was eligible. He was born in uh, Panama Canal Zone, which was uh, on a U.S. military base that was sort of within the realm. Uh, the reason I think it's um, a, uh, a bad provision of the Constitution is uh, basically two reasons. Uh, first, that uh, this is, as we commonly say, a nation of immigrants. Many of our most dedicated, uh, loyal citizens are immigrants, and I see no reason why they ought to be excluded from eligibility from the presidency. Uh, and then the second is uh, basic democratic principles, right? That is, if there's an argument that somebody uh, is likely to be disloyal because he or she was born somewhere else, then the voters can pass judgment on that. We don't need to categorically exclude people. So that's, that's the normative uh, framework with which I begin. But, of course, you know, in constitutional interpretation, in order to make a normative argument, there has to be at least some wiggle room in the meaning of the language. Uh, some people have recently argued that there is no wiggle room. Um, for example, uh, University of Chicago professor Eric Posner says that, look, natural-born citizen means somebody born uh, in the United States, or possibly in the case of someone like McCain in a place under the U.S. jurisdiction, uh, because otherwise you're not giving full effect to the word natural, right? Um, 
Other people who have looked at the original uh, understanding think it's a close question. There's a nice forthcoming paper by Michael Ramsey that looks at the original uh, meaning and concludes uh, that on balance, someone like Cruz, uh, who was born to to one U.S. citizen parent, counts. Uh, There's some pushback against that uh, based in part on the, a, an act of 1790 in which uh, Congress said that uh, people sort of like Cruz, quote, shall be considered as natural-born citizens. And you say, well, if they're to be considered as natural-born citizens, does that mean they're not automatically natural-born citizens? And if they're not uh, natural-born citizens automatically for constitutional purposes, Congress can't seem to confer that status on them. Then there's some pushback against that position that says, well, actually, uh, if you look at the English history, Parliament did have the power to uh, uh, naturalize people and thus turn them into natural-born citizens. So I think it's it's an undecided question, but that uh, if I were, uh, you know, someone in, in a position of power to make a decision, I would want to construe it as uh, uh, as much as possible to favor broad eligibility for the presidency. Great. Thanks for that very helpful summary. Uh, Ilya, uh, what should an originalist uh, think? T- Ted Cruz has said that he would point uh, originalists like judges. Um, would an originalist judge view him as eligible or not? And, and what's your sense of the arguments on both sides and which do you find most persuasive? This is a funny part of this debate that there are so many uh, uh, left-wing professors and other commentators who are purporting to say that under originalism, Cruz is hoisted on his own petard, that if we uh, operationalize his uh, theory of constitutional interpretation, that he's not eligible, but they're willing to be more charitable and kind of more expansive view of the Constitution. I I think, first of all, you don't ask people who don't uh, fully uh, understand or advocate a particular theory to, uh, you don't take their word for what uh, the result would be under that theory. Uh, look, uh, I, I think uh, it's a pretty uh, a simple question. It's, it's, uh, there are a lot of things to look at, but uh, what is the meaning of the term natural-born citizen? Because the Constitution doesn't say you have to be born in the country. It doesn't say uh, anyone born of U.S. citizen parents is eligible. It says natural-born citizen. And so, yes, we do look at the British example, uh, which uh, in ancient times meant that you had to be born in the realm uh, but then was extended by common law and uh, eventually statutory uh, uh, passage by Parliament to say that uh, as the empire grew and you had more envoys and soldiers and so forth uh, having children uh, uh, without uh, the United uh, the uh, United Kingdom, um, those uh, children would were also uh, natural born subjects, and I think that's a tradition in which. The, uh, the founders were operating. The concern was to prevent foreign royals from coming to America and asserting their uh, power or other people who might have allegiance to other sovereigns, as was frequently the case in Europe, after all. You had monarchs who uh, were born in other countries and uh, by marriage or otherwise would assume the throne in a foreign country in a language they didn't understand and, and things like that. Um, I don't think that, that this is the situation with uh, you know, Ted Cruz being some sort of uh, Manitoban candidate come down from the north with a secret plan to <laughs> make uh, the United States more like Canada to you know institute government health care and a small military and most importantly an NHL team for uh, Houston <laughs> uh, or you know the metric system imposing it on our children uh, unlike Lincoln Chafee perhaps or, or making maple syrup the national condiment but in all seriousness <laughs> the, the, the 
is. I think there are only two types of citizens. There are naturalized citizens like me uh, or natural-born, uh, people who are citizens uh, from birth. Uh, I think it's uh, slicing the legal onion too finely to say that there are some people who are citizens from birth that are natural-born and some who aren't. I don't know. Maybe like Macbeth, we ought to look at whether they're uh, you know, born uh, uh, quote-unquote naturally or via by, by cesarean section. It adds a, a whole other meaning to the, to the to the term, the historic phrase, uh, American Caesar, I suppose. But under the operative law, because Cruz's mom uh, was a longtime resident and citizen of the United States, he qualifies. Interestingly enough, Barack Obama's mom was too young uh, to qualify under the one-citizen parent uh, law in place at the time, and that's why it's important that Barack Obama was born in the United States. Uh, if he had been born in Canada or Indonesia or Kenya or wherever, uh, his mom simply was not uh, old enough to, to fulfill the, the requirement, and so that would have been an issue. But with Ted Cruz, um, there was no question of that, and, and he was a citizen uh, immediately uh, at birth. I think that means he was natural-born. Uh, whether he's dual, by the way, he renounced his Canadian citizenship famously a couple of years ago, uh, that is irrelevant. So the Constitution is silent as to whether you can be a, a dual citizen and, and still... Uh, uh, and still be a natural-born citizen for purposes of the presidency. Excellent. Uh, okay. Um, we have uh, two final questions, and those involve the scope of executive power. Uh, President Obama uh, has issued uh, executive orders regarding immigration and gun control. The one about immigration is currently under review before the Supreme Court, and the gun control one may be soon. Let me begin with the immigration order. Uh, there are some... Uh, questions about whether it violates the Administrative Procedure Act, but the most interesting constitutional question is the one posed by the Supreme Court, uh, whether the guidance violates the Take Care Clause of the Constitution, Article 2, Section 3. Mike, uh, give us the arguments on both sides, and do you think that President Obama's immigration order violates the Take Care Clause? Okay, I promise to answer that question, but at the risk of sounding like Marco Rubio and going to my stump speech, I want to just take one more second on the natural-born citizen uh, uh, question, where, where I mostly agree with Ilya, but I do want to point out there is a, an intermediate category between naturalized citizens and natural-born citizens, and that is contingent natural-born citizens, and that, at least according to Jack Chin at uh, UC Davis, arguably that's where Cruz falls, because under the law... Uh, in 1970, when he was born, uh, Cruz did not automatically become a citizen until he lived for five years or more in the U.S. between the ages of 14 and 28. So he wasn't necessarily going to end up a citizen at the time he was born, although he did end up there. Weapon that leads us to the ultimate conclusion, I don't know. But now, let me turn back to the uh, questions of uh, executive action. By the way, in addition to the excellent Mike Ramsey piece that Mike mentioned, I would also commend to your readers, uh, to your listeners, uh, the memo, the legal memo, literally is a legal memo in the Atlantic that uh, Brian Garner published about a month ago. It's uh, shorter than Ramsey's uh, and, and uh, very readable, uh, but it goes through all of these issues. Uh, footnoted if you want to dig deeper, but that, I mean, that, that I think is the the best kind of uh, pure lawyerly analysis that I've seen on the question. That's great. And I want our listeners to educate yourselves about these questions. Read the original documents. And if you have read both sides and changed your mind and reached a constitutional conclusion, let me know. Jay Rosen at constitutioncenter.org. Tell me which position you find more constitutionally persuasive. Okay, back to the immigration 
order, Mike, does it violate the take care clause of the Constitution? So, uh, as I said, with respect to Trump's proposal to ban all Muslims, again, I think it's useful to distinguish between what the courts are empowered to say and what the Constitution requires. There is no doubt in my mind that the Constitution imposes on the president an obligation to enforce the law, uh, at least unless he has a, a good reason for thinking a law is unconstitutional. And then we could get into questions like what the Obama administration position was on the Defense of Marriage Act when they declined to enforce it on the grounds that it was uh, unconstitutional, ultimately being vindicated by uh, the Supreme Court. Actually, I should, I, I should back up. They enforced it, but declined to defend it. Uh, but let's put that aside. So I think that a president has a duty to enforce the law. A president can't say, you know what, I don't like this law, whether it's a Democratic president not liking uh, immigration law or the marijuana law, or a Republican president hypothetically not enforcing the Affordable Care Act uh, or something else that, that he or she doesn't like. Um, the more difficult question to my mind is the question of the extent to which the courts uh, can order the president to enforce the law, where the president is making an argument that his partial enforcement or even non-enforcement is an exercise in prosecutorial discretion. Now, administrative law recognizes this idea in making non-enforcement decisions generally not reviewable under the Administrative Procedure Act, but that's just a statute. Presumably that could be changed. Uh, the question is whether um, in a case in which the president says, look, I'm not enforcing some category or subcategory of the law because I just think it's a lower priority than some other category of the law, either private litigants or a state, as in uh, the case currently before the Supreme Court, ought to be able to come into court and say, uh, Mr. President or Madam President, you are violating your duty to take care of the law be faithfully executed. Uh, you know, the, I think the most powerful argument against that appears in Justice Scalia's opinion in a standing case, uh, the Lujan case, in which he says that as a matter of separation of powers, the courts oughtn't order the president uh, or the executive branch to enforce the law because that's their duty. If you don't like the way that they're enforcing or not enforcing the law, there's a political remedy. I should say, um, I find myself deeply conflicted about that question because I see the power of what Justice Scalia is saying there. Um, I also understand that uh, traditionally the executive branch does have considerable prosecutorial discretion. On the other hand, I am troubled by the idea of any president, whether it's one I agree with or disagree with, simply saying in the guise of prosecutorial discretion, here's a law that was duly enacted by Congress, either with my signature or other president's signature or for president's veto, I don't like the policy and therefore I'm not going to enforce it. Uh, so I think it's a very hard, very fundamental question. Very interesting. Uh, Ilya, you are a noted opponent of the recent executive actions. You said that President Obama has blatantly violated the strictures of our founding document with his pen and phone and hearkening to Woodrow Wilson's progressive view of government. He's been taking out his frustrations with the checks and balances that inhibit his ability to fundamentally transform the country. Tell us why you believe that the immigration order in particular violates the take care clause. And if you want to tell us about Woodrow Wilson's view and how that fits in and what our listeners can read about that view, that would be interesting as well. 
Well, I mean, that that goes back to what we started off with. Uh, Wilson came in with an idea of technocratic administrative uh, government, uh, and that the kind of class liberal uh, ideas of checks and balances and separation of powers and all that was antiquated uh, and prevents uh, progress and prevents uh, good government. Uh, and so um, you know, we should uh, uh, discount that uh, to a certain extent. Uh, um, the uh, the immigration uh, uh, case, the Supreme Court has now taken it up. It'll be argued in April with a decision expected by the end of June. Uh, is uh, an interesting example. I, I'm I'm uh, sort of happy that uh, this issue came about because it gives me uh, an example of something where I uh, generally favor the policy, but consider it to be unconstitutional. When you're uh, a, a constitutional uh, a scholar or legal pundit, it's always great to have uh, more examples of things that you uh, generally like but think, unfortunately, are unconstitutional. It, it shows that you're being intellectual. So it is here. I've actually been filing briefs on behalf of Cato, uh, joined by uh, Josh Blackman and professors uh, Peter Margulies and Jeremy Rabkin, uh, on behalf of uh, uh, people that generally support, like Cato does, uh, immigration reform, but think that to change the law, you have actually have to pass a new law rather than the president rewriting. Um, and uh, not to recapitulate the entire case, uh, but this is not about prioritizing whom to deport, that uh, uh, you go after uh, 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 criminal gangs and, and human traffickers and drug lords or what have you uh, over people that uh, are not violating any laws other than uh, being in the country here illegally. You can that that every president uh, uh, has enforced that kind of uh, prioritization, prosecutorial discretion, or whatever you want to call it. Just like a uh, a criminal prosecutor can uh, choose to go after murderers and and rapists uh, more than than jaywalkers or or what have you. That that's not a problem. That's not the subject of litigation. The problem comes in is the supplemental affirmative step, not simply the negative decision not to go after certain types of people or to prioritize in different ways, uh, but to uh, accord uh, a sort of temporary legal status with various uh, uh, benefits that uh, that attend that. And I think that's a step change. That's where the problem lies, uh, both in terms of administrative law, which is, after all, the basis of the initial injunction that the Homeland Security Department did not go through the proper uh, notice and comment rulemaking to implement its new uh, regulation uh, or policy or guidance or however you want to characterize it. Then there's the layer of statutory law. Is the executive branch empowered under the existing immigration uh, statutes to act as it did? And then there's take care issue, which, uh, of course, the National Constitution Center is most interesting. But it's also curious uh, that the Supreme Court added this question. Uh, Texas, uh, in its in its briefing to the Supreme Court, asked the court to add the constitutional issue, and it did. But I don't think that the the eventual ruling, one way or another, will turn on the constitutional question. I think the the court uh, wanted uh, a full range of briefing on all of these issues. So, to the extent there are kind of background principles that they want to invoke or talk about, or to the extent that they want to use uh, Justice Jackson's uh, concurrence in the steel seizures case. Uh, the last uh, real and, and biggest time that the Supreme Court has encountered uh, the Take Care Clause or the, the scope of executive power when he's acting in concert with congressional policy uh, against or when Congress is silent. Um, so I, I can't see a situation where the court will say, oh, yes, he's following the law, he's completely justified, 
uh, under the immigration statutes, but he's violating the take care clause. Uh, or he's violating the law, but nevertheless, uh, what he's doing is constitutional because he gets other powers through the take care clause. I, I think that that's odd. Um, but I'm, I, again, as someone who's interested in these issues, and certainly as part of the advisory board to the, uh, to the, to the NCC, um, uh, I think it's great that, that we're looking at the scope of executive power uh, in, this, uh, in this context. And what does it mean to be faithfully executing the law um, at these sorts of issues? I, I look forward to seeing the briefing and to seeing exactly how this question plays out uh, at oral argument. But again, I, I think this is kind of the, the court um, uh, making sure all of its bases are covered without necessarily thinking that a rule of decision in this case or about the legality of DAPA will turn on uh, the constitutional question. Great. Well, we will return to the case when the Supreme Court takes it up. And I'm glad that you flagged those special moments of constitutional integrity when your constitutional views diverge from your policy views. Listeners should try to achieve that moment of constitutional integrity as well and experience, feel well, Felix Frankfurter used to praise these moments so you can have a Frankfurterian frisson when you actually realize that your constitutional and policy views diverge. Our last question is about gun control. Uh, President Obama on January 5th announced a series of executive actions to combat gun violence. Critics argue that his proposals are potentially unconstitutional on the grounds that Congress has rejected and arguably expressly declined similar gun control measures many times in the past. And they say as a result, the president's power is under its lowest ebb, according to the framework that Justice uh, Jackson established in a famous case called Youngstown. Uh, Mike, a big question, but what's your sense about whether or not President Obama's gun order violates the Constitution? Uh, so let's. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to uh, just one more small point on immigration, then I'll, I'll sure. segue to guns. So um, the, you know, I think that uh, Ilya and I were sort of uh, ships passing in the night there. We, um, you know, I would say that uh, readers who are interested uh, might want to check out a blog post on my blog from uh, months ago by Anil Callahan, who's a, a, a law professor at uh, Drexel University and a specialist in immigration law. And he thinks the real issue in the case is whether one appropriately characterizes the immigration uh, executive action as conferring any legal status or simply withholding deportation. And there are certain collateral uh, effects that sort of follow automatically. Uh, and so it might end up that this ends up being a kind of uh, much ado about nothing. Uh, that is, it doesn't tee up the, the sort of ultimate constitutional question that uh, – uh, I was referring to, which is whether uh, the courts can enforce the president's duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Okay, with respect to guns, right? So the the basic argument uh, of Justice Jackson in steel seizure is that uh, where the president acts in contravention of Congress's expressed will, uh, his power is at its lowest ebb. Uh, where he acts with delegated authority. He's got uh, the greatest power because then it's, he's got his own inherent uh, executive powers plus those delegated. And then there's this so-called zone of twilight where Congress has spoken to a matter but hasn't specifically uh, either authorized or forbidden what the president uh, wants to do. Um, I think that this, uh, you know, the, the gun control uh, uh, orders probably fall within that zone of twilight. Um, but 
the you know there is a plausible argument, I suppose, uh, that gun control advocates will say, no, actually, he's just carrying out Congress's will, and that uh, gun rights uh, proponents will say, no, no, this is contrary to what Congress has uh, ultimately uh, has, has done here. Um, we can term that a constitutional question, and of course, in some sense, it is. But I think it's really ultimately just a matter of statutory interpretation. Uh, in this regard, you know, the president is doing what presidents do, right? Which is, uh, you read the acts of Congress to give you as much power as you can, uh, and then people will tend to push back. So I, I actually don't have a strong substantive view about whether these actions are wise um, or whether they're authorized by the statute or contradict the statute or sort of in this twilight zone. Uh, I do think that it's sometimes uh, our tendency to go right to the Constitution when the issue might be more appropriately and perhaps boringly analyzed as a matter of statutory interpretation and administrative law. Uh, thanks very much for that. Ilya, your thoughts about whether or not President Obama's gun order violates the Constitution? Well, to come up with something Mike said, I think this is much ado about nothing. Um, uh, or to uh, use a perhaps uh, Second Amendment analogy, uh, his action is a damp squib uh, <laughs> in the sense that uh, it was built up, uh, and probably for political reasons, uh, as some big change in terms of gun control or the president doing something about gun violence, but there's not much there there. Uh, tightening, uh, adjusting minutely one of the background check regulations about what constitutes uh, a gun seller such that you have to uh, uh, conduct a background check. Um, you know, this is a minor regulatory tweak. Uh, doesn't raise too many concerns in my view. Um, uh, uh, encouraging by providing funding for law enforcement to go after gun violence. Again, not really a change in the law. Uh, mental health treatment uh, uh, resources and prioritization, uh, and encouraging more gun safety technology. Uh, this is not uh, kind of the uh, the big fears of the gun community. I mean, not even the NRA made a big deal about this. And so I don't see a, a statutory or regulatory issue with this, let alone a constitutional one. Uh, and it certainly doesn't rise to the level of uh, you know, what the equivalent in this area would be if you parallel it to what he's done uh, with respect to, uh, well, immigration or Obamacare or so many other areas. So uh, President, uh, President uh, Hillary Clinton, Secretary Clinton, has uh, uh, promised to go much further. But uh, as far as Obama has gone, this is... Uh, uh, an example of an executive action that, uh, regardless of the, the policy wisdom of it, uh, I, I don't think really raises uh, legal concerns. Great. Well, this has been an extremely nuanced and illuminating discussion. I've learned a lot, and it's time for closing arguments. I think I'll ask both of you this question. Um, Mike, uh, critics of President Obama, including Ilya, have said that some of President Obama's executive actions blatantly violate the strictures of our founding documents and really call Obama a Wilsonian when it comes to ignoring uh, original limitations on governmental power. Uh, do you agree with that and, or not? And can you put Obama's views on executive power in historical context? Uh, I think uh, Barack Obama did not come to the office of the presidency with the goal of 
buying checks and balances or uh, rewriting separation of powers. Uh, he pretty early on faced uh, stiff resistance, especially after the midterm elections of 2010, when uh, the Democrats uh, lost control of Congress. And at that point, I think he did what, as I say, presidents typically do, which is he tried to act uh, uh, outside of legislation. Now, I think he's pushed the edge of the envelope, but I don't think he's acted in unprecedented ways. Uh, To my mind, interestingly, perhaps the most problematic of the Obama actions is the one with which I agree most as a policy matter and that I think is probably the least controversial, and that is his complete non-enforcement of the uh, marijuana, federal marijuana laws in states where marijuana is either completely legal or uh, permissible for medical purposes. Uh, and I say that because the government's argument there is uh, completely implausible as a matter of resources, right? That the idea that you would devote your resources to the uh, federal resources to the places where uh, states are already enforcing the the parallel state law, but not to the places where the states uh, have a different policy. That seems to me to be implausible. Uh, But there does seem to be a kind of acceptance, partly on federalism grounds, partly on uh, libertarian grounds, that this is a permissible policy. Um, So, uh, you know, I guess I think that uh, Obama's uh, going it alone is more a product of the times than it is of any concerted effort to undermine the Constitution. Uh, And at the end of the day, our political system will rein him in uh, if he's going too far. Thank you very much for that. Ilya, your thoughts about whether or not President Obama's executive actions uh, are unprecedented historically and and why you believe that he, like Wilson, is is really uh, blatantly violating the strictures of our founding documents. Well, the the three most popular in terms of number of clicks uh, op-eds I have ever written were all titled President Obama's Top Ten Constitutional Violations. And I seem to do these every other year, 2011, 2013, 2015. One was in the Daily Caller, one was in Forbes, and most recently this past December in National Review uh, Online. Your readers can look those up uh, or they can look it up on my page at, at, at Cato. I think there's this tremendous sense that uh, what he is doing, because Congress is broken or gridlocked uh, for good or ill, uh, is something new. Now, my view is that there is no clause in the Constitution that says that when Congress won't act, the president gets more powers. And it seems like he has been uh, certainly pushing on every occasion and breaking through all too often uh, the proper uh, uh, scope of uh, executive authority. Now, I actually don't think that he the, the, the marijuana enforcement is an example of uh, where he's uh, doing something uh, inappropriate or violating the his duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Because after all, he's just uh, resetting enforcement priorities. There are only so many DEA agents uh, around the country, around the world. Uh, most drug enforcement, 99% of drug arrests, or at least marijuana arrests, are done by state and local law enforcement. So it's simply uh, impractical, impossible uh, uh, for uh, uh, Colorado, Washington, uh, Alaska, Oregon, the four states where recreational marijuana is now legal, 
uh, for marijuana to be prosecuted uh, uh, federally. And so the Justice Department has set its priorities as going after criminal enterprises and uh, drug use or, or trafficking on public lands or diversion to other states, things like this, violence, firearms. I think that's a perfectly appropriate and proper use of prosecutorial discretion. It's not like, again, to draw an analogy to immigration, that the federal government is issuing cards uh, uh, allowing marijuana users to uh, be exempt from federal prosecution. That would be a, a, a step further, an active step, rather than simply prioritizing uh, enforcement. So that's not an example. But uh, in terms of suspending, rewriting, delaying the law, certainly with Obamacare, but in so many other areas, I do think that he has tried to, uh, uh, as I said, fundamentally, well, as he said, fundamentally transform the country. Uh, and when Congress won't act, he will, as has been the case from, from day one. This is not something new or something with him being uh, a lame duck. Even on immigration, he said, I think, 22 times before the 2014 elections that he couldn't do what he ended up uh, doing uh, once he was passed the last uh, election that he would have a, a say in, uh, uh, as it were. And so I think he's done tremendous damage uh, to the separation of powers, to uh, to constitutionalism, other than perhaps to raise the... Uh, the, the profile of the Constitution in our in our public discourse. I, I give him credit for that. Uh, and also, to pivot a little bit, uh, uh, this concept of the constitutional conservative. Uh, I was interviewed recently by a reporter for Vox. Uh, I don't think this article has come out yet. But the phenomenon of the constitutional conservative, I'm very curious about this, uh, whether in the context of Rand Paul or Ted Cruz, so certain others, uh, people, uh, Randy Barnett, a uh, law professor at at Georgetown, uh, the progenitor of the uh, Obamacare individual mandate challenge, uses this this phrase a lot. What does it mean? Where is it? What's its origin? What, how does it uh, differ from a, a simple uh, uh, conservative? Um, it's very curious. But this is uh, one uh, uh, latest development, I suppose, with respect to executive power, a response to the excesses uh, of Obama and uh, and Bush. I think. Fascinating. Um, that's a good topic for a future podcast. And in fact, we'll soon be rebroadcasting the great discussion we had yesterday at the Constitution Center on Liberty's Nemesis, a new book uh, of uh, constitutional conservative authors about executive power. Uh, listeners, you've just heard a great constitutional conversation. You've heard that there really are good arguments on both sides that are uh, champ uh, debaters have uh, expressed, uh, and they, even though they've told you what they think, and you have some homework. Uh, go to Mike Dorf's blog and read about the citizenship question. Uh, read Ilya's top 10 constitutional violations. Uh, be open-minded, and if you change your mind about a constitutional question, please write in and tell me what you think. Ilya Shapiro, Michael Dorf, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Today's show was engineered and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg and Daniele Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. I want to know what you think of the podcast. Email me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. 
We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. And finally, my friends, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.